we're so used to seeing things that, in my opinion, aren't quite right in our treatment of animals. Yeah, the less we eat, the less violence is being done, and the less destruction to the environment. Everyone eats, and everyone has to make a moral decision every time that we sit down to the table. Welcome to Animal Voices, Western Canada's only radio program dedicated to animal advocacy and compassionate living. This is 100.5 FM CFRO Vancouver Corp Radio in Vancouver, BC, Canada on unceded and traditional Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh territories. Today is Friday, July 31st, 2020, and I'm your host, Leah, and I am joined today by my co-host, Grace. Hi! Thank you for joining me today, Grace. Happy to be here. On today's show, we will hear from Abiyose Cole, the vegan poet, on the power of language and what led him to writing the children's book, I Am Not Food. Addie Rivera Sondas on her use of artwork for social justice and illustrating the children's book, June Bug, No Life Too Small. And lastly, our feature interview will be with Jen Rivera Bell on veganism, parenthood, decolonizing food, and minimalism. Stay tuned for a great show. So Grace, this week we have a few things to talk about. This past Sunday, there was a protest at the Greater Vancouver Zoo, and folks were there remembering Oakleaf, a moose who had been seen emaciated for several weeks, and the Greater Vancouver Zoo had decided to euthanize her on Wednesday of last week. So folks were there asking that the Greater Vancouver Zoo can be more transparent in what happened to Oakleaf as well as other animals who have been missing from the zoo, such as Jester, another moose, and Karin, a mountain goat. And you were there. You were at that protest. Is that right? Yeah, I was. Um, there was probably around 30 people there. We were keeping the energy up outside of the entrance. We're going to hopefully hear more from more people going out there and um, standing up against the violence that is captivity of animals for entertainment, standing up against CASA, which is Canada's accredited zoos and aquariums. I think it's hard for people too because with this situation, you have the zoo saying that it's relating to the age of the animal, but there was clearly, you know, visible things that are related to the care, such as the toenails of this moose were really overgrown. I think that the public, they deserve to hear a statement that is congruent with what we're seeing. Like we deserve to hear from somebody who isn't working at the zoo. Yeah. The news coverage was of us, and then it was also speaking to the vet at the zoo, which is problematic in the sense that that person has whatever interest in making it seem as though they haven't made a mistake, you know? We need somebody from the outside who isn't going to be giving us some, like, sugar-coated version of the story. Exactly, yeah. A third-party vet that knows about these animals because there's clearly something greater going on. The SPCA has said they're going to investigate the euthanization of the moose of Oakleaf. So definitely should stay tuned to see what comes out of that investigation. Also this week on August 1st is the first ever Respect for Fishes Day, which is quite exciting because fishes are oftentimes animals 
who not only are they so, so incredibly used and harmed by human beings, they are, you know, killed by the trillions every single year, but they are also forgotten about. Hopefully this Respect for Fishes Day will bring more attention to the lives of fishes and the struggles that they go through. It's true. I think a lot of people have this misconception that fish don't feel pain. I think a big portion of that is that a lot of that fishes aren't as communicative as some other land animals. But that diversity that is in the ocean, we've only explored but 4% of the sea and there is an entire planet essentially of fish living sovereign lives that I think we should really consider. Mm -hmm. Also this week was Vancouver Pride Week, but you know, (laughs) we celebrate Pride every single week on the show, so there isn't anything specifically Pride related, but I mean, we're queer, so that counts. (laughs) So live Pride, yeah, we live with Pride. Downtown Eastside Women's Center has been helping self-identified women and their children for decades, but today, the DEWC needs your help. Due to the COVID-19 crisis, the center has had to cancel its annual in-person fundraisers, depriving the center of crucial financial resources. Services such as hot meals, clothing, showers, and secure mailboxes are now in jeopardy. To find out how you can help the Downtown Eastside Women's Center, please visit their website at dewc.ca. That's dewc.ca. Abiose Cole is a poet, animal rights activist, teacher, hip-hop artist, producer, and recording engineer. He started writing in 1989 at the age of nine and has since found poetry to be his truest form of expression, be it in rap form, spoken word, or prose. While most of his career has been spent honing his talents in hip-hop, he has been focused on spoken word poetry since 2015. He has won numerous poetry slams and taught poetry workshops to students ranging from middle school age to adulthood. I Am Not Food is a cute yet powerful, beautifully illustrated children's board book written poetically by Abiose Cole and illustrated by Kaylee Castle from the perspective of various animals who explain why they are not food. Hi! Good evening, how you doing? I'm good, how are you? Oh, wow. So thanks for joining us. Absolutely, thanks for having me. I was wondering first if you could share with us a bit about yourself, who you are, what led you to veganism, and what led you to animal rights advocacy. Okay. When I was 15, my father passed away from colon cancer. And um, I had a few friends who were vegetarian at the time. And so I started to do a little bit of research. The first book that I looked at just figure out what was going on because I had questions. You know, I'm 15, 16 years old. My dad died. I wanted to know what causes cancer. So I went to the American Cancer Association as a reference book. And and this is in 96, black and white colon cancer is caused by stress on the intestines, which is directly related to meat. This was in the American Cancer Association. So I felt betrayed. When I was 20, I, um, I studied in Ghana and West Africa for a while, and I came across a book called Back to Eden. And um, after reading that book, I went plant-based, but it wasn't really until probably 2015 that I went full vegan. Um, I, and I, I got around some animal advocacy groups that really got into my head and just made me feel pretty silly for, you know, 
having having all of this time not eating any meat and yet still buying belts and leather shoes and whatnot and just not really fleeces, you know, not really thinking about the the damage I'm causing to animals on the other end. And so um so at that same time I started to transition. I had a background in in hip hop and um I had gone to school for record production. I had opened a couple music studios, worked with some very famous artists and um, saw a lot of politics in the music industry that I didn't really want to get involved with. And so I, I got a little despondent about the, that whole direction. And um, in 2015, I started to experiment with um, spoken word. And so I started to write some spoken word poetry. Really, at first, I started to convert some of my hip hop pieces into more spoken word, acapella pieces, breaking it up. And it started with a song that I wrote called I Am Not Food. And um, it was a song written from the perspective of animals that were in the slaughterhouse. So it was a pig, a chicken, and a cow telling their story, um, the various fears that they might face and, and whatnot, just the emotional background with them. And um, when I first did it, I did it over a hip hop beat. I recorded it as a song. And um, when I broke it down and started performing a cappella without any, um, you know, without the restrictions of rhythm, I realized I was able to connect with the audience more thoroughly. And so I started to really experiment more with spoken word and um, not really being tied to a, a rhyme pattern or a beat pattern. And I found it very liberating. Um, and so I, I had created some popularity. I put out a couple videos on Facebook and got some, like one of my videos was shared by the Cowspiracy social media networks. And um, so I knew I had my hands on something good. I developed a relationship with Casey Taft at Vegan Publishers. A couple of years later, he invited me to Boston to table for him. He, he needed somebody to help him at a Boston Veg Fest. And so I started tabling for him. And what I realized was that, um, cause I was thinking about publishing a poetry book, but what I realized was that the bigger need was for the children. I, I realized that for most vegans, we've spent a lot of time researching and, and studying and we kind of have a solid foundation. But when it comes to the children, there's not really any literature to really support that type of mindset. It's very limited. And the, the few children's books that they were selling at the table for vegan publishers, it was mainly children's books that were getting sold. It, it clicked in my head and I was like, hmm. So I have this poem, I'm not food. I mean, it's pretty graphic as it stands right now because the whole premise is I'm not food, you're violent, right? And that, that was the premise of the whole piece. So it took me a little while to figure out how to, how to change that. Um, and I came up with I'm not food, I'm a person. And that kind of just led to the whole children's book. A few edits later, we, me and Casey struck a deal and um, here we have a book. So was a lot of the content in the book related to the initial poem or is the content quite different? You know, it's a whole different premise. You know, while it is still from the perspective of, a, of an animal, you know, it's talking about in regards to their, their personhood as opposed to us being violent. And so it's it's a very different poem. The only similarity is the title, right? It's the same title, but two completely different takes on the same concept. And so with that too, how have your beliefs influenced the majority of your poetry? And then on the other side of that, how does spoken word poetry influence your behaviors? Mm, interesting question. So anytime that I ever wrote music or poetry, 
it was always to express my truth. And um, so spoken word, when it came to veganism, it was just a, a, a way for me to communicate these thoughts without having to get into a debate with somebody. You know, I could just tell you exactly what I'm feeling, well articulated in a way that you find entertaining, and can just kind of show you my perspective and why I believe what I believe. You know, this is the point I'm making, and you can take it or leave it, you know? And so spoken word influences my behavior just in the sense that it allows me that that voice. You know, I'm, I'm, I tend to be a very introverted person. I'm very private, and I don't I don't really engage with people too often unless I have to. Poetry has, has just been that that means to allow me to communicate, you know, and to just feel normal for, for a brief moment. I do feel that. <laughs> yeah, it's a really important tool, and I was thinking about how. Why do you think it is important to utilize your talent for something that? something like animal rights advocacy? Great question. So I think um, language and culture are so inseparable. And I think spoken word just plays on both of those things. Just art in general, it allows us to connect with the logical side of our brain as well as the artistic side. And um, so I read a book um, many years ago called Egyptian Yoga. And, and, and the, the principle is that... Um, we have two sides of our brain. We have the logical side and the emotional side. The logical side has to be in control, but you need the emotional side in order to connect with people. We're social beings. And so artistry allows for that to take place where you can have logic and you can back it with emotion and it resonates with the individual on a different level than just a normal conversation would. Uh, I don't know why that is. I can just tell you that I know it works. You know, I've seen I've seen amazing things happen with, through poetry. Um, whether I mean, there was one example. I did a piece called um, "Dissonant Cognition." I performed it at Loomis Chafee, a private school in Connecticut, and um, a, a year later, I went back to the school to perform again. And the student, one of the students, came up to me and said that after hearing that poem, she ended up going home and converted her whole family to veganism. And it's just like, you know, the, the impact that we can have when we put those two things together, it's immeasurable. And so I, I think it's just so often misused and um, it's used to douse people's thinking so, so often just because it's, it's popular. Pe thinking is the hardest thing, you know, and, and it took me many years to realize that people don't like to think, you know, it's, it burns calories, like it's an exercise, it's really a workout. And so um, what, what happens with poetry is that people that come out to hear poetry are looking to think. They're looking for that inspiration, for something to, to hit them a little bit. And so that's why I think I found it a good fit for me in spoken word. I didn't feel like I had to water it down for the DJs or the promoters. I could just speak my truth. I didn't have to fit it into some rhythm or some, some beat or have some perfect rhyme structure. I just needed to speak my truth. And so I, I found that to be extremely effective when it comes to animal rights advocacy, when it comes to human rights advocacy, I think, um, which are really inseparable. And it's unfortunate that I actually have to make that disclaimer that there is no difference between human rights and animal. We're all people at the end of the day. It's, it's about equality and treating people as they should be treated, as you would like to be treated. Yeah, if you are fighting oppression, you need to be consistent and fight all oppression. Right. I love that. Like that spoken word makes it digestible in some way for people. And something else that struck me and also Leah about 
I Am Not Food is that the story is from the perspective of non-humans and that they are explaining why they're not food, shifting away from the human savior mentality um, and giving these animals an opportunity to advocate for themselves. So I was just wondering if you could talk about that decision. Yeah, oh, definitely. I mean, the original poem, it, it, it hits so hard because it was, you know, it was a pig in a slaughterhouse talking about how he could smell his mother on the farmer's breath. And, and just the, it had to come from the animals to, to really relay that emotion. You know, I mean, because I can't I can't speak for a pig, but a pig can speak for itself in this particular case. And so when I translated it to the children's book, because the title was I am not food, you know, it's the principle I am. Right. So I exist. And so I'm going to speak my piece. Right. And I mean, so I gave the animals their voice and I tried to do it as best I can to be real with how I saw their perspective. You know, it's, it's still not going to be theirs. Obviously we don't speak their language, but you know, I, I did the best I could to kind of translate that in the way that, that fit into my perspective. How has I am not food been received in and out of the vegan community? So it's interesting. Um, when I first released it, um, I saw a lot of pushback from both sides because it's referring to non-humans as people. And um, I had to really defend that stance. It took me, it actually took me to a great place because I had to really get deep into my own philosophy and why that's something that I feel okay with. A noun is um, a person, a place, or a thing, right? That's, that's the only way a noun can be described in Western English. And so if it's, if it's not a person, then it's gotta be a place or a thing. But an animal can't be a place, and it's certainly not a thing because it's animate. Like when we look up the definition of thing, a thing is an inanimate object that has no sentience. So it's impossible for an animal to be a thing, yet at the same time, legally, we have to describe them as things because otherwise we, we're, capable, we're culpable for murder, right? It's not slaughter anymore, and that small change in semantics changes everything, but it really is semantics and it's all based on human law as opposed to actuality right and when we actually look at the words we're talking about people this is why we name our dogs right we consider dogs part of the family because they we, we consider them people they have personalities we, we know this to be the case and so it was interesting that i really had to defend the stance i mean i expected it from non-vegans but even from the vegan community to have to really explain that to people it was it was mind boggling at first. And, um, you know, I got over it and I just did the best I could to show people my perspective. I mean, the, the strength of being um, a conscious hip hop artist is that you get to the point where you really don't care what people think. You're, you're right specifically for your own entertainment because you don't want to listen to a bunch of garbage. And so I was literally writing music for myself. So I built a certain level of character, a certain level of integrity where I'm just, I'm only gonna express my views and I'm really not gonna concern myself with what you think about it. Cause otherwise I can't be truthful to who I am. It is quite shocking to remember or just to meet other vegans that do still think that they are superior to non-human animals in some way right. to the extent that they are objectifying non-human animals. Um, something that both Lee and I take quite seriously is regarding the personhood of a non-human animal. and remembering that a chicken is not an it they are them right and for a lot of people that's extremely radical 
Objectifying non-human animals is just ingrained in the language that we are raised with. Language and culture are inseparable. And so, I mean, our culture has shaped our language and our language shapes our culture. And it's, it's this never-ending cycle. And so we have to be very conscious about the words that we use, definitely. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with us about your books or any of your other works as well? Um, I mean, I'm just excited to, to have the opportunity to get my work out there. I know that there's tons of artists out there that don't get that opportunity. So I'm very thankful to be able to have been published, to have been able to work with Casey Taft, to work with people like yourself who are helping to promote this work. I feel it to be a very important work um, and maybe a, maybe a little bit ahead of its time. You know, it may take a couple decades before people see the value in it, you know, but um, on a larger scale, you know, and, and that's okay, you know, if at all, if it happens at all, it might take a little while before people really catch on and see how important that piece is. And um, I'm just, I'm, I, I consider myself very blessed to put it out there. That's interesting because I really do think your work is so relevant to now. This children's book and what it represents, I think is relevant, even though some other people might not be able to connect those dots in the present moment. So how can our listeners find your book and your other poetry as well as connect with you on social media? Absolutely. So um, my book is available at Amazon Books as well as at veganpublishers.com. My name is Abiose, that's A-B-I-O-S-E-H, The Vegan Poet, right? So it's very easy to find me on YouTube, Facebook. I've got um, work on, on social social justice, you know, so I cover a lot of different topics. You know, I, I really try not to hold back and um, definitely looking forward to any feedback any of you might have for me. Looking forward to connecting with all of you. So on Abiose's social media, you will find more than just children's books i have one child children's book and that is it you know i only did one and i think that will be the only one i think there's other directions i need to go but um yeah definitely yeah it's it's not censored either so be prepared if you're gonna click on the vegan poet it's it, it's gonna get real <laughs> i'm not vulgar but i'm real and uh, i will just leave it at that so thank you again for joining us, and I hope you have a wonderful day, um, wonderful evening on your end of the East Coast. Yeah, I'm really happy I got to talk to you. Appreciate your time. I hope you enjoy the evening as well. Take care. Here is a recording of an out loud reading of I Am Not Food. I Am Not Food, written by Abiyose Cole, illustrated by Kaylee Castle. I am a pig, and I am not food. I am a person just like you. I love my family. I love my friends. We love to play in our muddy pig pen. We wrestle and run. We jump around and roll. Our oinks are our words. It's how we say hello. I grunt softly when I'm happy. I roar when I'm mad. I love it when you rub my tummy, not when you hurt me or treat me bad. I get hungry like you do. I like acorns, fruits, and greens. I sleep inside my mud bath and have happy piggy dreams. Please don't cook or eat me. That is very rude. I am a pig and I am not food. I am a chicken and I am not food. I am a person just like you. I like to jump when I play. 
and I can run really fast. I can count in my head and even do math. I like to dig in the dirt when the sun gets hot. I bathe in the dust. It cools me off a lot. I cackle when I lay my eggs. Growl if you get too close. Hiss to protect them and sing them happy notes. I love to eat oatmeal and lots of juicy fruits. I sleep in a flat nest. You call it a roost. I am not your dinner. I have feelings too. I am a chicken. I am not food. I am a cow and I am not food. I am a person just like you. My family likes to dance in the spring. My friends play fetch for fun. We jump around the yard and we really like to run. I make milk for my babies, not for cheese and ice cream. My calves love my milk. Don't take it away. That's me. I moo when I speak to tell you if I'm happy or sad. My fur keeps me warm if the weather is bad. Sometimes I eat corn, but my favorite, it's hay. I also eat a lot of grass and sleep in it all day. I'd really like to be friends. Is that okay with you? I am a cow. I am not food. Addie Rivera is a Mexican illustrator who loves coloring, learning, and exploring ways in which she could build a kinder and more sustainable world. Her biggest inspiration for drawing is that she knows that stories and art are slowly but surely changing the way people understand themselves and perceive others, building empathy and a more inclusive world. Hi Addie, thank you for joining me today on Animal Voices Radio. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you. Thank you, Leah, for having me. I'm really excited and happy to talk to you. Thank you for the opportunity. Of course. Could you first tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got involved in veganism and advocating for all animals? So to tell you a little bit about me, my name is Adi, as you mentioned before. I'm a Mexican children's book illustrator. I'm a mother of six cats and one hen. <laughs> my vegan journey began when I was five. I became a vegetarian because I saw my grandma kill a chicken. And I decided that, that I didn't want anyone to suffer. I didn't want like, any chicken or any person to suffer. So I stopped eating animals like chicken, cows, hens, everything. And uh, my family was really not supportive, but they respected my decision. But none of them changed their eating choices. So I kind of uh, started to tell my friends at school that I didn't want to eat animals because I really love them and I didn't want them to suffer. And my friends understood, so that was kind of like my first uh, steps or beginnings into doing activism. Uh, but I, I wasn't like very good at it. Like I tried to fit in and like being socialized a woman, I was not very confrontational back then. So, like, no one really, like, changed due to my small or young activism that I did when I was, like, in high school or, like, before that. The real change uh, began, like, two years ago when I researched, like, activists in YouTube and Instagram. And I saw, like, more information about um, 
dairy the dairy industry and the eggs industry because I was a vegetarian. I was not a vegan before and um, I couldn't ignore it anymore. And I finally did my research. Like I had felt uneasy for a very long time, not being vegan, but I like didn't listen to my intuition. I just kept going thinking that vegetarian was enough. And then I also bought the lie of the happy cow and like the milk will go to waste if we don't drink it. And the same with eggs. Yeah, so I will say um, that my real like activism began two years ago, and uh, I it has changed a lot. Also, like I slowly have educated myself more, and I have taken like a more politicized position in my veganism now. Like not just a diet or or a shopping list, but it's like a stand to oppose the commodification of all animals and all life. Mm-hmm. Cool. Thank you. How has your artwork been an important medium for you to share information and stories in relation to social justice or other important things in your life? Drawing is like really, really important for me, like not just on my activism, but like in my everyday life. I make money from that, like that's how I make my living. But it's also like um, it helps my mental health, like I can process my thoughts and ideas. And I also get to share it with people and it has helped me a lot to find community and to learn from others. One thing that has been really important for me when doing activism or my illustration activism is that I do it like in a very loving way. I do not want to shame or shock anyone into respecting animals. I think that some people might need like this hard call of seeing like like these really strong images. But others tune out when, when they see this and they stop paying attention if, they're, if what they're seeing is too hard. So I think that having a different approach in our activism is very valuable. You are listening to Animal Voices on Vancouver's Co-op Radio, 100.5 FM CFRO, 100% listener-sponsored radio broadcasting live from the east side on unceded Coast Salish territories. How have people received your artwork? Have you got people reaching out to you saying that your artwork made them more open to veganism or changing their political opinions in other ways? Yeah, definitely. Like I've, I've heard the really cool interactions with people. Like I do artwork for like different um, expressions of social justice, like for veganism, for immigration, which is like a really important uh, thing to me as well. So people are sometimes like really supportive and open to talking, you know, like like they maybe start with a point of view and they kind of approach me saying like, you're wrong, you know, like this is how you're wrong. And then we talk a little bit and usually they end up, I don't know if they really accept my point of view, but at, at least I think we have a educated and sometimes even like productive, I don't want to use the word productive, very capitalist, but um. <laughs> A heart-to-heart conversation, I think, like just knowing that people are open mm-hmm. and they care enough to write, I think it changes something in the conversation and in the world. So I think your artwork is brilliant and I've seen you create many wonderful graphics as well as illustrate multiple books. One of your new projects is a children's book called Junebug, No Life Too Small. Would you please tell us what Junebug is all about and what it was like bringing this sweet story to life with your drawings? 
First of all, thank you so much. You are very kind for saying this. Well, Junebug was a joy to illustrate. It was written by Nikki Daniels, who is like such a loving uh, vegan person. <laughs> and it was published by Vegan Publishers. And this story, it's about a girl who teaches her friends uh, that every life is important, no matter how small. Like, And this is like a play on words because she's like a young kid, but she makes a difference. And it's also because the bugs are small. So it's like it doesn't matter if you're a bee, a cricket, or a spider, a worm, whatever, your life has intrinsic value. And the process to illustrate this book um, was, and every book, I guess, it's like you get the manuscript and then I start developing the sketches for the characters. And once like we are on agreement for like the visual that we are going for, um, I start working on the color palette. And particularly for June, even from the character, it was like really intuitive. Like I, I knew it from the beginning when I read the story, what June looked like. Like I saw her curly hair, her like curious brown eyes, her yellow boots that she's wearing. So when I read the manuscript, I was like, oh, my God, this is her. <laughs> and then thankfully, they accepted the the character. They were like, yeah, yeah, it's our vision. So go ahead and keep working like with that style or vision, direction. So then for the color palette, I wanted to have like really simple backgrounds and like very peaceful, green, but fun with geometric shapes. And I wanted the kids and the box to be like more in vibrant colors so they will pop up and like be in harmony. That's kind of the process, like manuscript, then sketches, then color. Cool. I see that your Indiegogo campaign is now at 107%, which exceeds the amount that was needed for the project to go forward. How do you feel about this goal being achieved so quickly? And how can our listeners get a hold of a copy as well as support your other work moving forward? I feel really excited and thankful for the support that Junebug has been getting. So once the campaign is like finished, people can get the book through the Vegan Publishers website. So I hope that if anyone is interested, like after the campaign is finished, they can go there and get it. As for the rest of my work, uh, non, not everything I do is vegan oriented. I always try to like infuse my work with a little bit of change, just small things here and there, because as an illustrator, I don't have that much control over the story. But yeah, I always try to make it a little bit more um, inclusive and, and vegan friendly for kids who are vegan. But my work, they can find updates on my Instagram account. I usually post there when a new book is released. What do you hope kids and their parents will get out of the story of Junebug? So first of all, for all the bug-loving kids, uh, I hope they see themselves represented in the story. I know I will have loved to see this book when I was a kid because I love bugs. And it will have helped me like explain my friends how I felt. And then another thing that is very special to me about this book is that the editors gave me a lot of freedom to create the characters. So I got the chance to represent a bit of like ethnic and body ability diversity. And that is really important to me as a woman of color um, to see diversity in books. And I think that in a world where racial inequality translates to pain in the life of real children, it is necessary to do what we can to actively oppose these narratives of inferiority that Black, Indigenous, people of color, and people with different abilities or life experiences or choices have to live or face. 
Great. Thank you again for joining me today, Addie. And I hope you have a wonderful rest of your week. Can you tell us your social media information so that people can reach out to you and connect with you? Ah, yes. Thank you, Leah. My social media is Addie, A-D-D-Y underscore Rivera, R-I-P-E-R-A. It's like river, but with an A at the end. <laughs> Thank you. I mainly use Instagram only. Okay, great. Jen Rivera Bell is a wife and mother of two children, Luna and Kuali. She's a proud descendant of the Nahua people. She started her work in activism through her social media. Hi, Jen. Thank you for joining me today on Animal Voices Radio. It's a pleasure to speak with you and virtually see you. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. Our show today is focusing on children's books and parenting from a vegan perspective. So to start us off, could you please tell our listeners about yourself and about your journey into veganism and what or who inspired you to advocate for animals in your life? So my name is Jen. I use she, her pronouns, and I am an indigenous mama of two little seeds that try to run me up the wall every day. Um, I am currently in Osage Nation territory and what is referred to as central Missouri and I live here with my two pigs and my two dogs and my two kids and my partner, Zach. A little bit of how I got drawn into the animal rights movement was through our pig, Mowgli. Um, funny enough, we got her in probably the least vegan way that you could possibly get an animal, which is we just bought her from a breeder, which obviously um, we are highly against that now and we would never suggest for anyone to do that. But um, we got her and we, we, at the time we lived in a studio apartment, which again is probably the worst place to have a pig, but we thought it was a good idea. And so she lived in my studio apartment. She weighed about three pounds. And the day that we got her, um, we realized that she was basically like our baby, right? Just like with any first real pet that you own, your first companion animal that you have, it's just life-changing and we were like okay um she's our baby now we can't eat pork because that would be just not good and um my husband zach is cajun and my roots are in el salvador and so our our diets were very focused on eating pigs and that shift i think was probably just the most life altering just because our cultures were so focused on those foods. And so in the beginning, because we did it all overnight in terms of not eating pigs anymore, that was probably the hardest part was, um, wow, what, what do we eat now? Um, once we started digging into it a little bit more, we realized that may, maybe we shouldn't eat cows either. Or maybe we shouldn't eat chickens either or fish. And we kind of went um, into looking at documentaries and reading books about it. And we realized that, you know, these are sentient beings that don't want to be harmed. They want to live. And especially seeing Mowgli on a daily basis, um, I tell everyone all the time, she's the sassiest, most like, I, I can't even explain to you her personality because she's so in your face, both figuratively and literally. And so just having having her around really pushed us into speaking out. So had you taken her in with the intention of having her just as a pet, of keeping your, her in your yes. home? Yes, we, we uh, solely got her with the idea of 
having her as a quote pet, having her as an animal that we just had around and just seeing, you know, we see all these little factoids of like pigs are so smart or, you know, pigs can do math and we can see those. But if you don't interact with that animal one-on-one, you don't really believe it or you do believe it, but you don't really get it. And just seeing her the the way that she would tuck herself into bed because she was an indoor she was an indoor pig for several years and so at around seven o'clock she would just stare at all of us and be like okay I need to go to sleep y'all need to shut up and so we would kind of quiet down so that Mowgli could walk into bed and like tuck herself in and just seeing just how how intelligent and how worthy of life she was um, it kind of interconnected with everything else and how we had been taught otherwise, right? Because as children, we all know these things and we follow our dogs around or our cats around and they're like our siblings. And then as we get older, we're taught like, no, 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 we're better than them. Like, you know, and um, kind of start believing this illusion of them not feeling pain or of them sometimes deserving that pain, you know, like we, we are better than them. Therefore, we have every right to do whatever it is that we want to them. Mm-hmm. How do you feel like living with Mowgli? And you said there's another pig too? No? Yes, Petunia. Petunia. <laughs> living with Mowgli and Petunia, how has that been an opportunity for your family now with the two children, like growing them up? I think, like I had mentioned before, it's one thing when we read books or um, even watch shows or documentaries that have animals. It's a completely different experience when they're when you're with them every single day. Um, I always advocate for parents, for vegan parents to take their children to sanctuaries because they're able to really see these animals interact with one another. Um, but there really is nothing that comes close to them being with you. You know, like that Luna has known Mowgli her entire life. Like that is her sibling. And so um, to her, it's an outrageous idea that anyone would want to eat an animal like Mowgli because that that's your sibling the same way that uh, in modern Western society, we see dogs that way. Like absolutely no one would eat Bobby. Like that's our, you know, that's our pet, you know? And so that's how she's growing up with our pigs is the fact that they're like her siblings and Guali's in the same boat, you know, always feeding them carrots and, and bringing them treats. And so having them here in the yard, like right now they're currently playing together, um, has, they, they have this connection, um, the same way that we typically have with our dogs or our cats or things or animals that are deemed pets. How has being a vegan and otherwise socially engaged person influenced who you are as a parent and how you raise your children? I am a huge advocate of intersectional everything. And so um, the way that we treat beings who are, quote, lesser than, who are, quote, uh, inferior to us, um, I kind of, I, I truly believe is indicative of our character. And so when we're showing Luna... And Kuali, you know, we need to treat these little bugs with respect. You just pick them up and move them. You know, they're, they're in their home. And I think that that shows them um, in many ways that this is how you treat everything. It's not just about the bugs. It's not just about the dogs or the cats or even people, but our planet. Everything, we, we have to 
find value in these things. Um, and especially from that age, um, because it's kind of, I wouldn't say like molding them, but in a way, kind of, um, we as children pick up everything in our surroundings. And so by modeling that behavior of caring for all creatures, not the ones that are cute, not just the ones that are fluffy, um, but all creatures and that they're all deserving of life in a wholehearted way. I think that it kind of is the, the pivotal, the, the most important part of our parenting style is that, that empathy and that respect for all beings. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. Can you please tell us how you homeschool Luna and what kind of resources you use and share with others, as well as what advice you might have for parents who may be unsure of where to start? Okay, so my first thing that I tell all people who are either curious about homeschooling or weary about homeschooling is you have to be passionate in learning. Um, I know that a lot of people Um, especially with our style, which is much more nature schooling and unschooling. Um, You have to want to learn yourself. You have to be an avid learner yourself or at least be on that path because our children model everything we do, everything we feel, every vibe that we have, they pick up on that. And so, you know, I, I try to encourage people to be as hype about learning as you would want your kid to be. And so when we're outside and Luna's like, ooh, what kind of frog that is? What kind of frog is that? And so I'm like, let's take a picture and then we're going to go inside and we're going to look it up. And so she gets super excited about it. And so, yes, um, you know, textbooks are great and you can follow a curriculum if you want. Um, All of these other things that go into homeschooling. Um, But if you don't have that, like, thirst for knowledge, then I think it's going to not be as fulfilling or as efficient in the long-term goal, which is to create lifelong learners. Like that's awesome that you want them to learn, you know, their multiplication facts or, you know, uh, all of these math formulas. But if they're not willing to take that forever, then we we sold them short on, on what it is to truly teach our children to be learners. And so one of the best things for me is you have to observe your child because all kids are different. And as human beings, we have this tendency to compare ourselves, whether it's, uh, you know, myself to another parent or my child to another child or my partner to another partner. And we have to focus on what we have, especially to me, homeschooling is about being able to personalize your child's education as opposed to here's this book, this is exactly what you have to do, doesn't matter what you say. I I just don't think that that's a very effective way of teaching someone because we're so different. And so um, Luna, surprisingly enough, really loves um, to sit down and loves to do workbooks and stuff like that. And so people will oftentimes ask me, well, how do you get to do that? Or, Or what do I need to tell my kid in order to do that? And I just tell them that's just Luna's style. She really enjoys doing that. And so I always provide that for her. But if your child is more hands-on or if your child is more like, let me run around, incorporate teachable things into that that way. You know, if your kid loves running around in the living room, let's play a game of um, let's find all the red things and, you know, run around the living room, find all the red things or just simple things like that instead of doing the opposite, which is 
this is what you have and this is what you have to learn or the way that you have to learn because it stunts their ability to want to learn more afterwards. We don't want them to just just learn facts. We want them to want to learn. Mm -hmm. So have you received any pushback from family or other or other outside influences on your choice to have um, vegan pregnancies and raise vegan children? Do you have any advice for new or expecting parents who may be struggling with navigating these conflicts or decisions? Um, so funny enough, we don't get any pushback. And that comes from the fact that we've been vegan for so long. I think we kind of went through the pushback phase in the very beginning. So we've been vegan for however long Mowgli has been around. And so she's about seven, I believe. I don't, I don't remember how old she is, but um, in the beginning it was awful um, because we didn't know what to eat. Uh, we didn't know what to do. Um, we didn't know any sort of even basic nutrition behind it. And so it was really scary at first. But then once we got the hang of it, we became very vocal. Um, we became very, very confident in our in our choices. Um, and so by the time that I became pregnant, by the time that we had Luna, everyone already knew we're raising our children vegan. Um, we are raising our chil our children minimally. We are raising our children outside. And so by that point, by the time that Luna came around, everyone was like, yep. I assumed you were going to do that. So no one, no one had any issues with that. And now being that we've had, um, very various amounts of open communication with my parents, as well as Zach's parents, um, they already know the boundaries that we set, um, again, after numerous conversations. And yeah, those first couple conversations were really awkward because, you know, we tie our food so close to our culture. And so finding alternatives to that, I think, is the best thing to do, especially with people who seem very set in their ways. And, you know, we were very much a cooking family. And so now it's awesome because we veganized all of our traditional recipes. And so my mom loves coming over and we cook together. And um, now her and Luna have that, that they can do that in a way that isn't involving um, the death of any animals. Or um, for example, Zach's dad, he is a hunter. And obviously that was something that he wanted to do with our children and that was not going to fly. And so the thing that they do together is they walk through the woods. And so he gets that sort of experience of being able to be in the woods with his grandkids without any of the harm being done. And so it's, it's about finding those little things that you can do, um, not necessarily just to satisfy them, but for them to still be able to be involved in a way that doesn't cause harm. So I think that that's uh, something to think about, whether it's meals or activities that either grandparents, friends, family members wanted to do with that child, you can find a positive, non-harming version of that, that the children can be involved in, that you can still make those lasting memories. Mm -hmm. That's really cool about the walking through the woods. I hadn't thought of that as like an alternate activity. Yeah, and Luna loves it. So in what ways does social media, namely your YouTube and Instagram, allow you to connect with other vegans, parents, etc., and create a unique form of community? So 
social media has been my primary way of making community, especially now, um, being that we live pretty much in the middle of nowhere. I don't have any neighbors. Uh, <laughs> there's like squirrels around me that I hang out with, but that's about it. And so I've, I've taken strongly online because it's really as simple as hashtag vegan family, hashtag uh, vegan kids. And then you're able to connect with these people. And I think that that's just one of the delights of the internet. You know, there's a lot of downfalls, but there are so many beautiful things that come out of it. And so I've made long lasting friends and people who I see as family online that I've followed on a whim because either they're vegan or they have vegan kids or whatever that may be. And now we're able to meet up and I've met, you know, friends that live in Chicago or live in Canada or live in LA and we're able to meet up with them. And we, we have to find ways even more so when we're not able to physically connect with people. And I think that now more than ever with the pandemic, it's even more critical um, because even if you do live in a city with tons of vegans, you might not be seeing them anymore. And so for us, um, having meetups online and just connecting with people, doing very simple things like sharing recipes together and then sharing pictures afterwards of like, oh my God, look, this is how mine came out. Yours looks so much better or whatever. Just simple acts like that to be able to not feel alone. Like I said, especially during these times, if you're part of a community that might be um, even more isolated because of something like this, whether you're vegan or minimalist or zero waste, whatever that may be, um, during these times you can feel like, wow, I, I'm the only person out here who's doing this. And so finding that community online, finding two or three friends um, that you make a group chat with, you know, something as simple as that can make you feel less isolated and can make you feel more connected. Mm -hmm. So what does it mean for you to be, you mentioned minimalism, raising kids that way and for yourself living that way, for your family, what advice would you have for other people wanting to go that way? Um, so for us in particular, I think that a lot of our consumption comes from um, this desire to feel whole, right? This desire to feel complete and buying things is never going to going to fulfill that. And so I think that digging deep, a, a lot of the things that we do um, stem from things that we haven't healed yet. And so I think that a lot of the work that I've done has come in part from healing a lot of those things. And so when I was younger, I was literally addicted to shopping at Forever 21. Like that was my thing. Uh, I made minimum wage. I worked at Sonic. And the first thing I would do when my paycheck hit was go to the mall and shove as much stuff in there and my check would be gone. I mean, I would have maybe $30 for food until my next check. I knew at the time that it wasn't good, but at the same time, I didn't know an alternative because everyone that I knew was the exact same way. And so I was like, yeah, it's bad and I need to save more money, but you know, everybody's doing it. So it's, it can't possibly be that big of a deal. And obviously it is that big of a deal, not only for my money, for my mental, for the environment, for the workers that were making the clothing. I mean, all around, just not a good thing. And really sitting with myself and thinking about, okay, obviously these things are bad, but why am I doing it? Why is it that I feel that I need to buy these things? 
to feel that rush, that high that we get when we buy a bunch of stuff that we don't need, but also taking into consideration my appearance and what I wanted to project and how I felt like if I didn't dress a certain way, um, I wouldn't be liked or I wouldn't be loved or I wouldn't be worthy of that love. And so it took a lot, a long time for me to, to really understand that. And now I can shop in the thrift store and not feel shame because a lot with our culture as well is um, this idea of even poverty being shameful, right? And so if you shop at the thrift store, it's synonymous with poverty. It, that was something in and of itself that I had to kind of move away from and work through. And so now as a family of minimalists, again, it was something that because we were minimalists for so long before having children, our parents, both mine and Zach, kind of knew that, okay, well, they've been doing this for a while. I'm sure they're going to raise their kids the same way. And so we set some firm limitations when it comes to the gifts that the kids can receive. And that kind of came with a little bit of backlash because I know, you know, grandparents just want to love on their kids. They just want to um, give them stuff so that they know this. But after a while, we kind of came to that conclusion of, I don't want them to love you because you're buying them stuff. I want them to love you because you love them and you'll have this relationship. And they kind of understood that like, wow, you know, I don't want them to think of me as just the person that brings them toys every once in a while. I want them to be excited to see me. And so again, all of these conversations happened even before the kids were born. And so by the time that they did pop out, it was kind of an understood thing. And so for us, minimalism looks like not having a bunch of toys. It looks like you know, when we go to the store and we do see a new toy, that does look really awesome, Luna. Maybe we can take a picture of it and we can add it to your wish list for your birthday or para Navidad and we'll see which ones that you would want. Um, because obviously I don't want her or Kuali to ever think that they are so different because we are already so different in so many ways. And so it's not to say, um, you know, they can never have a new toy ever or everything has to be from the thrift store, but it's finding that balance between her being really excited about a new toy, but also not being so excited to the point that she forgets about everything else. And that's something that I'm really proud of the way that we've handled holidays and birthdays is to really focus on like, we're hanging out because it's your birthday and Tio Pecho's coming and, and we're all going to be together. We're going to put music on and we're going to eat so much yummy food today and, and creating those memories. And also you get a gift, you know, like, being able to balance that out without it being overwhelmingly like, oh, it's my birthday. I wonder what all the gifts that everybody got me are, you know, and finding that balance can be really difficult even as an adult. But um, I think that by incorporating minimalism, not only is it, I feel a great way for them to build character, but also a stress reliever as a parent, because no one wants a bunch of shit in their house. That's just a given. And so it is able to give you such a sense of relief being able to walk into a room and there's not a million things bursting out of there. So how do you navigate that, like being different as a family? Or how do you anticipate navigating that as they get older and recognizing that maybe their views are different than most of the people who are around them outside of the home? I think that this is going to be a challenge to navigate because of the fact that we're super fortunate that a lot of our friends and family are vegan. And so when we go to someone's house, we have free range of food typically because they're vegan too. And so, you know, there's only a few people that we hang out on a semi-regular basis that 
aren't vegan and that she does have to ask questions. But typically it's I'm going to go and look for stuff. And so being able to be aware of that, um, I think, is going to be really important. But also having these conversations that, hey, you know, some people do eat animals or some people do do this and we don't. Um, even even simple things, you know, even simple things like paper towels. Uh, we went to my mom's house, I think it was at the end of, uh, in the beginning of this year, and she had paper towels. And Luna was like, what is this? And she was like unwinding it. I was like, those are paper towels, put them back. Because she grows up with rags. And so just like simple things like that, that you would never really think of, of being an issue. But um, they have so many things that they are going to be different but at the end of the day, every family is very different from every other family. But we do have so many things that are similar and just emphasizing on those as well, because I don't want her to ever ostracize other people for not doing the things that we do. I think that that's the last thing that I would ever want is, you know, us going into someone's home and they're using a straw and then her like go off on somebody because they're using a straw. I have to have them understand that people are making different choices and maybe they don't know about it or maybe they do know about it and they have a reason why they're doing this. And our job is to, you know, talk to people, um, maybe educate people, but it's always going to be up to them. I don't ever want her to be harassing the people, especially the people that she loves to be just like her because we're not perfect. And I don't ever want her to think, oh, we do X, Y, and Z. Therefore, we're better than you. And so I think that that's going to be one of the things that I'll have to navigate through as she gets older, as we hang out um, with different people and just be in different scenarios. Mm -hmm. So shifting a little bit, one of your YouTube videos that came out just last week is about decolonizing history. How do you see colonization playing a role not only in the history we've been taught as people living in white supremacist colonial states, but in our food systems and in the ways we have been socialized to treat other animals? On this topic, I'm going to speak in particular about my roots, which is meso-indigenous roots. And, um, you know, so much of colonization has affected every realm of everything that we do from appreciating the planet, from having these ceremonies for harvest, you know, but in particular, how we see food as a whole, how we see the nutrition that we eat as a whole, you know, in Western society, we see this as an extra, like, you put this into your body, and that's it, you know, when in reality, that's clearly not the case. And so in particular, for us, you know, our food is based on beans and based on corn. And so much of the food that we ate was very plant-based, at least, you know, in the area that I'm from. And so it's been wonderful and it's been amazing to reconnect with our traditional foods because I'm like, wow, this is vegan anyways. Like, this is so cool. And being able to really have that healing process of cooking and eating the foods that we ate traditionally has been something that I, I can't even put into words really how, how awesome it's been. And so not only the way that food is harvested or processed now, but the act of eating itself, the act of consuming the food is so disconnected, just like basically everything now, everything is so compartmentalized and individualized that we don't see the, the unity of it all. And so that's one thing that I really suggest people, whether it is 
um, going to the farmer's market or growing a little bit of dill in a little pot, anything that you can grow yourself, you find so much more value in it because you, you saw that little seed, you saw that work that that little plant was going through in order to feed you. And so by reconnecting with that, we're able to find a, just a different level of appreciation for the food that we have. Do you grow a lot of your own food? So we're super fortunate um, that we have land that we're able to cultivate on. And so we have zucchinis and tomatoes and okra and calabaza and so many goodies that we're growing. And um, it, it's one of those issues now that I have that the kids are always in the garden picking stuff before they're ripe and eating it all. And so I feel like I have a rotten infestation in the garden because I'll <laughs> see like cucumbers that are half eaten just dangling there. But we are super fortunate um, that we are growing our own food. And um, my plan is to expand it as much as possible. And my ultimate goal is to have a food forest that would be super abundant and that people would be able to walk in and essentially get their groceries and pay what they feel they bought. And that's my ultimate goal is to have a situation like that, to be able to feed people in a way that so many people can't anymore. You know, so many people are so disconnected either intentionally or unintentionally due to lack of access, due to lack of education on their food. And so to be able to have something like that is my ultimate dream. Great. Thank you. So could you please share with our listeners how they can connect with you and support your content? So um, y'all can connect with me through my Instagram or through my YouTube, which is all at Jen Rivera Bell. I also have a website that I have been neglecting, but I will get back on it, which is also uh, JenRiveraBell.com. Great. Thanks. Thank you again for joining me. And I hope you have a great week. You too. Looking for ways to engage and educate your kids while schools are closed? Your kids can learn from home with C-Smart's Ocean Defender online courses. Kids aged 7 to 10 become an Ocean Defender through interactive virtual lessons and hands-on activities. C-Smart provides all the resources your kids need so you can work from home with ease. Even better, C-Smart wants to support you with their Pay What You Can initiative. Visit csmartschool.com to register today. That's S-E-A, smartschool.com. You've been listening to Animal Voices here on 100.5 FM Vancouver Co-op Radio in so-called Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, on the unceded and ancestral lands of the Tsleil-Waututh, Squamish, and Musqueam Nations. Join us next Friday, August 7th, for a show honoring World Elephant Day on August 12th. Allison will be speaking about animals who are used for the wildlife trade, as well as an updated interview about the GV Zoo in the aftermath of yet another death. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram as Animal Voices Vancouver, on Twitter at Animal Voices YVR, and email us at radioanimalvoices at gmail.com. We will leave you with another poem by Abiose Cole called Dissident Cognition. People do not like it when I question their beliefs. Especially when that question has to do with the consumption of meat. They want to tell me to mind my own business, to not even speak, to keep it to myself and allow them to eat. I want to clarify some things before I explain my position and break down this concept of dissonant cognition. First and foremost, what you do is up to you, and difference of opinion is what makes relations beautiful. It's the only way we grow. 
That's why I love debates, religious or political. They can shape the way we contemplate. And I wouldn't propagate against the meat eaters played of ethically and environmentally. I didn't see so much at stake. I'm by no means perfect. <laughs> Let's just get that straight. I'm not on a vegan high horse, self-righteous or great. I'm just an ordinary citizen envisioning a home for my children's children to be living in, debating on adoption as global resources are dwindling. This isn't about your diet or how body mass can be crippling. There are overweight vegans too. That's just nutrition and conditioning, no. This is about what psychologists call cognitive dissonance, which is the psychological state of positional hypocrites. I don't mean that as an insult, but as a common reality, especially in the carnist world where death isn't considered a casualty, but rather accepted quite casually. The fact that we can speak on ecology without properly addressing the properties of the meat we slovenly eat is a prime example of societal hypocrisy. It seems justified by taste until the 2,000 gallons of water you waste for one pound of beef is all gone, and then it's too late. So why wait? Vegans face a lot of hate. Vast minorities, only 5% of the United States, and still growing at a fast pace against the mainstream green. I mean unsustainable paper that supports the meat as it seems. The reality of what that means is that we are drastically challenging things and don't have the support that more numbers would bring. Killing is so normalized in the average person's mind that challenging the diet of the times is almost viewed as a crime. Feminists don't care that cows get raped for cheeses. Just like doctors don't care that meat causes several diseases. According to the World Health Organization, while your doctor's profit increases because the WHO's findings and views have yet to be reported in the mainstream news to keep progressives on the fringe. And on the holidays, they can encourage you to binge. You see a carcass as food. I see your plate and I cringe. This isn't about your right to taste great food. This is about my right to a home that's livable on a planet you misuse without seeing your food as an issue. They'd be like, cry me a river. Matter of fact, here's a tissue. While they tear up their liver and listen to paid off officials, of course, that's your choice. Not something I can dictate. I can only hope you see my reasoning in a challenging debate. Why when Chinese kill their dogs, it's completely not okay. But when a farmer kills a hog, you get ready to prepare your plate and then grab a glass for the pasteurized product of rape and salivate at the prospect of a tenderized steak. Fight for abused dogs, not cows, as though the difference was that great. That's called cognitive dissonance, which would make most of us considered hypocrites or fake. There is no perfect vegan, so don't take it the wrong way. Society has become indecent, but progress begins today. Humans are the only species to breed animals for food. And we are destroying our home with the way that we consume. Vegans are here to stay. Go ahead and make some room in your mental space for change because this pace of killing for food cannot continue to be viewed as something that's sustainable. But again, the choice is made by you. Go ahead. Enjoy your food.